Welcome to Act in Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. On October 14, 2020, the New York Post published an expose on former vice president and current Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, headlined, Smoking Gun Email Reveals How Hunter Biden Introduced Ukrainian Businessman to VP Dad. Shortly after the article's publication, the ability to share the link to the story was limited and, in some cases, prohibited by Facebook and Twitter, with those social media companies alleging that the content was unreliable, unverified, or was prohibited for containing hacked information. This incident has provoked the latest round of calls for reform or repeal of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996. The U.S. Senate has subpoenaed Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg and Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey to appear before a hearing to examine the New York Post incident. Senator Ken Buck, Republican of Colorado, said, Condemnation is not enough. It's time to reform Section 230. Senator Ted Cruz, Republican of Texas, called Section 230 a gift and a subsidy from the taxpayers to big tech. And Senator Josh Hawley, Republican of Missouri, has introduced legislation that would allow Americans to file lawsuits against big tech companies who breach good faith user agreements by censoring political speech or suppressing content. What is Section 230? What does it actually say? What role did it play in creating the modern internet as we know it? And what would happen if it were changed or repealed? Today, I'm joined by Scott Linsicum, an international trade attorney and a senior fellow in economic studies at the Cato Institute to discuss the issues surrounding Section 230. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Scott Lincecum is an international trade attorney, a senior fellow in economic studies at the Cato Institute, and a visiting lecturer at Duke University Law School. He also writes the newsletter Capitalism for the Dispatch. Prior to joining Cato, Scott spent two decades practicing international trade law at White and Case LLP, where he litigated national and multilateral trade disputes and advised multinational corporations on how to optimize their transactions and business practices consistent with global trade rules and national regulations. Scott Lincecum, welcome to Act in Line. Oh, thanks for having me. So let's start real basic here. Uh, what is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996, and how did it come to be? Right. So uh, Section 230 is a law, obviously, that um, relieves internet companies from uh, a lot of legal liability with respect to the content that third parties, basically you and me, people who aren't uh, employed or affiliated with the actual internet company, um, with the content that we put on on their websites. 
And the reason 2.30 came about was um, what became known as the moderator's dilemma. And the moderator's dilemma arose out of a series of court cases in the 1990s. Essentially, you had one series of court cases that held that websites that do not moderate content. So they just simply let anyone throw up anything, no matter whether it's legal, illegal, or whatever. Um, they just let no moderation at all. Um, the, the courts ruled that those websites were not liable for the things that um, that, that third parties placed, that, that content that third parties placed on their websites. Now, another series of cases ruled uh, much the opposite, um, but, it, but with a hitch. They said that companies that do moderate content, so for example, let's say they pull down pornography um, from their websites. If you moderate content, the courts were finding that they were liable for anything put uh, on their websites by third parties. And this arose primarily out of defamation cases. So people were suing these websites for false statements, um, uh, slanderous statements about them that were that were placed on these websites. So uh, Congress realized that, that this moderator's dilemma was really creating a, a rather perverse incentive for websites, essentially penalizing them for moderating uh, content. And essentially, um, so essentially saying um, that, look, you know, if you actually act in a good manner by pulling down illegal or defamatory or whatever stuff, um, you are liable. So that, of course, encourages and incentivizes them to, to, to not moderate at all, right? Um, which really would just turn the internet into even more of a cesspool than it already is. So, so uh, Section 230 was, was then developed um, in the mid-90s to solve the moderator's dilemma. And it does really two very simple things, contrary to what you might read. Very simple things. It is uh, both a shield and a sword. The shield really just says that any website um, shall be treated, uh, shall, excuse me, not be treated as, shall not be treated as a publisher or a speaker um, and thus be liable for content placed on the website by third parties. So in other words, uh, hosts of, in any website, social media, Amazon, Yelp, Netflix, you, the New York Post, you name it, um, any website will not be liable uh, with a couple exceptions, for example, for child pornography or stuff like that. Um, will not be held liable for any third-party content placed uh, on their website. So that's the shield. That's all it says. Now the sword. The sword is similarly simple. It simply says that companies also will not be held liable on account of their good faith efforts to moderate any content that they deem to be objectionable. And that's really a key point here. And it's that because it's, it is purely in the subjective opinion of the private business. It is what they consider to be objectionable. And that could be obscene, lewd, uh, violent, harassing, any way that they deem to be objectionable, they can moderate it and they won't be liable for those moderation activities. That is their sword. Um, and so that, 
basically websites can remove third-party content without liability, that you can't sue them for removing uh, your your posts, deleting your tweets, whatever. Um, and that's even if that content is protected speech. So it's protected by the First Amendment. So that's it. So this provision, the Section 230, has been called by some really what the, the clause that launched the modern internet, that yes. in 1996, if we think about it in terms of the time, that was when you'd get uh, CD-ROMs in the mail from AOL, or you access the internet through CompuServe and these far more gated systems, right. and that 230 opened up really and created what we have today and know as the internet. Is that accurate? Yeah, I, I think that's very accurate. In fact, um, there's a book out there called The 26 Words That Created the Internet, all about how Section 30, 230 really fueled the growth of what we consider to be uh, modern internet business. And again, not just social media. Of course, social media is a part of it, but really any sort of online business. Um, and if you look at the data, you see that both internet publishing um, and broader information communication technology uh, really grew exponentially over that period, um, almost an, a tenfold, nine and a half fold increase um, since the mid 1990s uh, through 2019. Um, and really is just a massive industry today. You know, as I noted in the newsletter, internet publishing alone is about five times, four times as big as the entire metals industry. So, you know, we're all worried about the steel industry and the aluminum industry here in the trade world. Well, internet publishing alone is is uh, four times as big as that, that industry. Um, and of course, employs hundreds of thousands of workers and the rest. Now, now look, um, there's no doubt that technology played a huge role as well. Um, smartphones in particular, um, just internet speeds, the quality of, of tech, certainly important. But experts pretty uniformly agreed that tech said that without Section 230, we wouldn't have seen this explosion of business because quite frankly, companies would have been terrified of trying to police third-party content. And quite frankly, a lot of websites, and, and again, not just social media, but certainly social media, uh, really couldn't exist without third-party content. I don't know about you, but when I want to buy something on Amazon, really the first thing I do after finding the product is go check the reviews. And if you can't have those reviews on Amazon or Yelp or whatever, um, those companies are really going to have a hard time existing. And so, um, you know, Section 230 played a really big role there. So the context that we're talking about this in uh, the most recent incident that has fueled this uh, conversation was Twitter and Facebook's treatment of a New York Post story on Hunter Biden in the context of the election. But it's not the first time that Section 230 has been raised over the last couple of years. It has come up with regard to Twitter placing warnings on President Trump's tweets, uh, decisions to block certain content. You have Facebook's decision to add a fact checking element to uh, what content that they allow yep. prior to, let's say, the last four years or so, had Section 230 really, I don't want to say flown under the radar because it had clearly been given this credit of creating the modern internet, but had it drawn anything relatable to the ire that it seems to be drawing right now? It, well, certainly not on the right. Um, it, you know, back, I'd say, in the mid-2010s, the left started to be upset about Section 230. Um, but it's funny, they were upset because they wanted internet uh, sites to police uh, their content more. And they wanted, of course, things that they deemed to be offensive, um, 
you know, uh, things, things that are politically incorrect, whatever, uh, to also be moderated. So the left had had an issue with 230, I think, before the right, but certainly in the last four years. And I think it is undoubtedly tied to President Trump, his use of Twitter and the 2016 election and the allegations of, you know, Russians uh, on Facebook and the rest. All of that really has fueled um, a intense interest and I think misunderstanding of, of 230 over the last few years. So. One of the things you mentioned was companies making good faith efforts to moderate their content. Uh, it would seem to me that the argument from the right and perhaps from the left as well in certain cases is that, um, and we're talking now more specifically about social media, Facebook and Twitter in particular, is that they are not making good faith efforts to do so. The argument, I think, from the right would be that they are targeting particularly uh, conservative speech or Republican lawmakers in a way that they're not doing the left. Right. Do you think that creates, does it create a problem for these companies with regard to Section 230? Yeah, I don't think so for two reasons. One is just the statutory language itself. Um, you know, I, I've, I, I'm now a recovering lawyer, but I can't get that out of me. I, you start with the statute. And, and like I mentioned before, the statute is really quite clear that it gives absolute discretion to the, the internet, to the websites for content moderation. And what that means is that really they can moderate anything they want for any reason they want. Um, it, you know, because the term objectionable is subjective means you can, it could be a political reason. Um, and so that, that I think on the statute alone, that argument fails, but there's a, a bigger reason. And that is that um, government efforts to regulate content moderation, even if they are, or especially I should say, content moderation that is alleged to be politically biased is really clearly covered by the first amendment. And so even if you didn't have the, the, the sword of Section 230, um, it's really a stretch to say that the government can go ahead and, and demand that, um, that websites be you know, politically neutral or whatever without running into pretty serious uh, First Amendment grounds. It would seem to me that there is somewhat of a correlation here to something we can look at in the past, uh, which was the fairness doctrine that existed for television and radio broadcasting up until I believe um, the mid-1980s when it was repealed that required yeah. if you were going to have commentary from the political left, you needed commentary from the political right in order to counterbalance it. And the removal of that um, yeah, I, I guess the argument would go is that it creates talk radio and the pre uh, prominence of Rush Limbaugh. It yeah. creates um, cable news in the way that we have it today. Um, right. Is that a, a good comparison? Yeah, I think it. I think it is, and I think that really is a good segue into you know another part of of my newsletter uh, on this was really to look at what are the potential implications of imposing a fairness doctrine for the internet, and if you go back to the early 1980s during the kind of the end of the fairness doctrine era, uh, talk radio, cable news. Um, were very, uh, first of all, they were dead media in general. Um, but beyond that, they were, they were quite tilted towards Democrat or towards kind of the left um, or left of center views. Um, and it was only with the elimination of the fairness doctrine that we saw 
this kind of vibrant growth of a conservative media ecosystem. And, you know, I think that conservatives would be wise to remember this history when they think that imposing a fairness doctrine for the Internet would would lead to political neutrality, which in reality, if, if we have, again, looking back at the fairness doctrine, it seems far more likely that it would end up uh, really in a similar space with kind of a, a dead space, chilling speech generally, but one that, that might actually be more tilted uh, to the left than to the right. I think what are the other counter arguments against Section 230 is that, uh, for better or worse, Facebook and uh, Twitter are essentially either monopolies and or public utilities. Right. That you have people who have created a living based off of Facebook or based off of YouTube or based off of their Twitter presence. And then when you have these companies making decisions to demonetize these people, to restrict the access that they have to the platform, to restrict the kind of content that they can share on the platform, that that causes uh, harm to these individuals. Uh, what do you make of that criticism? And what what would it be like if is it I, I suppose you don't think it's accurate to call these public utilities. What would it what would it be like if we did treat them as public utilities? So, right. So I think that um, you, you'd have a, a couple a couple problems. I mean, first, well, let me put it this way. I think you have a couple problems with that argument. First is that, you know, it really ignores that there are large and pretty vibrant alternatives to Twitter and Facebook. Um, so, you know, some of the ones I listed in the newsletter, you know, Reddit has 430 million users. Uh, a new one that is growing exponentially is Discord, which has about 250 million users. LinkedIn, 700 million users. TikTok, uh, 800 million users. Now, that, that one uh, might be going away soon, but uh, Snapchat has 300 million and is another major rising star in this area. And, and there are others as well. Um, and the point here is that the simple difficulty of moving to one of these other media or the simple fact that these media are quite good for your business is really not a reason for uh, regulation or nationalization. Um, there, because it, there, it is not a natural monopoly. Um, and so I think that's the, the first uh, problem. So second, I think the second problem with the argument is that you know we can look at other industries that have been heavily regulated as utilities, um, whether it's you know water and electricity and those things, or I think a better example is cable providers. Um, and what we see in those utilities is uh, poor customer service, poor quality of service, and a pretty lousy consumer experience. And so I think those individuals who are making good money on Twitter and Facebook right now, but uh, have fears of demonetization, really need to think of the alternative. The alternative is probably not going to be this just um, you know perfectly neutral Twitter and Facebook that we have now. Instead, it's probably going to be something more like Comcast of the 1990s, which I don't know if you lived in Washington, D.C. In, in the 90s and 2000s, but Comcast was a truly horrible uh, monopolist that did have a kind of state license kind of utility framework. And that's possibly what we, we can see here. Um, and then, you know, I think the other really important 
point that people miss is the historical perspective. And if you actually look back at the last 20 plus years of internet companies, you know, what was super popular 10 years ago was not the same company today. Uh, you know, I pulled up a hilarious title from 2007 that said, will MySpace ever lose its monopoly, right? And if you go back, it's not just MySpace, but there, you know, it's a very dynamic sector. And so to, to claim that these Twitter and Facebook have a monopoly today and it assumes that they have a monopoly tomorrow, I think is, is just defies the history of that. I'm old enough to have had a Friendster account even nice. prior to, uh, to MySpace. Um, drill down on the monopoly point for just a moment, perhaps definitionally. Give us a good definition of monopoly and do, you know, does Facebook have a monopoly? And if so, in what? Yeah, and that's, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, obviously, it's a bit rich if you take a really strict definition of monopoly, meaning a single provider of, of a good or service, um, a single seller of that service. Uh, it's pretty uh, comical to say that Twitter and Facebook, which are both, you know, unaffiliated competitors, have a monopoly. Um, and, you know, look, I already listed uh, all of the types of competitors that are already out there. But then, like you said, the other really difficult thing is creating a definition of monopoly. Uh, let's just assume they're a duopoly, okay? But it's the poly part that then we're going to get into a problem because you're really going to have a hard time defining what it is they have control over. Um, first of all, they're giving away most of their services for free. I mean, yes, they get your information, they get your eyeballs, but um, they're not charging anything and they're constantly improving their customer experience. But beyond that, if you, I mean, if you start saying, well, no, they are, they have a monopoly of information. Well, that's not really true because for example, you know, we go back to this New York Post story. Uh, I could quite easily learn about the story on Twitter and Facebook and then just open up a new browser tab and go straight to the story. Um, and there's really no uh, legitimate claim that Twitter and Facebook can truly control your ability to get information. All they really do is have a, a, a lease on your eyeballs uh, and uh, a good, uh, they, good, they get a good chunk of time for people like me who are very online, um, but they really can't control your ability to go elsewhere and get the information that you might want or need. And so I think that really runs into one definitional problem. Then in the ad space, um, well, you know, look, there's Google and there's a lot of others that that uh, allow for the monetization of information. Um, and, you know, so that I think runs into problems, too. Um, and there's also, of course, a lot of other companies out there that that uh, allow you to get information um, that would maybe run into the same type of advertising issue. So, so I really think it's going to be hard, leaving aside the the just simple fact that you have Twitter and Facebook as two entities, leaving aside that there are a lot of other social media kind of chat uh, tech companies out there. Um, I think you'd have a really, really hard time defining uh, what, what, they're, what they have a monopoly over um, to, to create a case. I did see a tweet from Missouri Senator Josh Hawley where he was extending an analogy of Facebook being like the only grocery store in town and they can decide whether or not you shop there. But he shared this opinion on Twitter, which I, I found to be interesting. 
Right. And that's a that's a great example of what we're talking about. And and, you know, I think the other really important thing when we get back to kind of the bias issue is that people seem to close their eyes and ignore the fact that how good conservatives and of course, President Trump being the ultimate uh, example of this, but how good the, the online right has been in using social media to get the message out and to bypass, you know, their uh, mortal enemies in the in the bureaucracy or the deep state, whatever you want to call it, and the media and the fake news and the rest. Um, they've actually been really successful in using social media for to, to push uh, their politics. And they've actually, uh, you know, benefited uh, fin- handsomely financially from this as well. And look, you know, I, I don't deny at all that there are some really sketchy anecdotes out there about Twitter and Facebook executives. Uh, and look, they've actually said it, uh, you know, uh, publicly um, that, you know, that there being some anti-conservative bias uh, among those individuals. But there have been studies of whether the media overall is biased in one way or the other, and they really don't reveal any sort of anti-conservative bias systemically. Um, and so I think that's a, a another uh, problem and a hurdle to overcome before we just start jumping into you know uh, regulation. I want to back up real quick to, we've talked about Facebook and Twitter and whether or not they're monopolies and what they might have a monopoly on. Uh, you mentioned Google. Um, I, what if you could talk about that a little? Because I think it would be clearer to define what we might think they have a monopoly on, which is search online. Right. To, to the extent that nobody says you search anything anymore, you Google it, even if you're doing it on Bing or Yahoo, or right. I guess Ask Jeeves is still around. Um, could you make a more compelling case for Google in this case having a monopoly? Now, they do a lot of other things, but at least in the search area. And you know there are allegations for them as well, manipulating search results to feed um, alleged political biases that they may have. Yeah, and so I think that that in terms of uh, arguing a monopoly of search, uh, there is a potential for Google to fit that definition by purely looking at the metrics. Um, that look, they they have something like eighty percent of the search volume. Um, the question really is uh, whether that monopoly arose out of uh, anti-competitive conduct or whether it simply arose out of being really, really good. And, you know, the the experts seem to, uh, I should say, the kind of free market side of it really seems to think that, that this is much more about um, just having a truly dominant uh, search tech and really something that can't be duplicated. Um, and in fact, the the joke is that people use uh, Microsoft Edge to download and Bing to download Chrome so they can start using Chrome and Google. And so Google things. So there really doesn't seem to be uh, much there. The, the question then, like you said, is, well, if they're manipulating search results, what do you do about that? And, you know, that I think gets really um, where you'd need hard evidence of kind of a systemic bias. Um, and then you have to ask, well, what's the solution to that systemic bias? Um, and, you know, really, I think, I think that, again, gets to where um, I don't think there's a really clean answer there. Um, you know, if you <laughs> turn Google into, uh, again, a, a state utility, do you really think you're going to get the 
quality of search and the uh, the quality that we consumers uh, enjoy every day. You know, there was this great study by Stanford's uh, Eric Bjornfelsen a little while ago, um, and I, I mentioned again in my newsletter, and they asked individuals to just to just quantify how much it would cost for you to give up search for a year. And that's, let's face it, that's free Google search. It's not Bing. And it was $17,530. So consumers are really valuing what Google is creating. And we really need to think about whether um, it is worth destroying that value, or at least uh, hindering it um, because of allegations, pretty loose allegations of political bias. Uh, for Google, I I would say perhaps I guess the counter argument would be that they rose to prominence because they did build a better mousetrap that using Google as a search engine was superior to using Yahoo or Ask Jeeves, any of those things at the time, right. but that perhaps the um, anti-competitive practices would be the way that uh, such a suite from them is deployed that you not only have search, but you have it tied to your Gmail email address. And YouTube is a Google product. And Google Analytics is the top platform for analyzing web results. And publishing is done so much on Google. And news syndication is done so much on Google that they have they maintain it by sucking you in with how good the search engine is. But this suite that's deployed over all these different things keeps you, it's breaking it up to so many other things, disincentivizes you from wanting to do so and keeps you with Google, whether or not it's a good product, I guess. Yeah, and, and I think that, that then you run into a question of whether they truly have a, a, a dominant presence in those other areas. And, and I think that case falls apart pretty quickly when you look at all of the different search engines out there, when you look at all of the different mail platforms, uh, of course, there's Apple and the entire suite of iOS products and the rest. And, and you know, just because uh, moving, uh, just because consumers might be a little lazy, uh, doesn't mean that you have a monopoly that requires regulation. I mean, quite honestly, um, you know, I don't really consider the, the Gmail app to be good, uh, uh, really good. Uh, I, I do use it out of convenience because uh, I've had a Gmail account for like 20 years and what am I going to do really, you know. Um, but at the same time, when I want to do real work, I use Outlook. And, you know, again, that's the other 900-pound uh, gorilla in the room is Microsoft and its dominance in uh, the kind of office suite as well. Um, and so there's really not, I, I don't think just because we're kind of lazy and we're okay to use inferior products is a reason to say, oh, you know, we got to break up Google. Let's bring it back to specifically Section 230 here. You have various calls for it to be repealed. Uh, so it's a two-part question. One, what would happen if it were to be repealed? And two, are there any quote-unquote reform proposals that are floating around out there that wouldn't repeal it but would change it in a way that at least seeks to address some of these concerns or issues that people are raising about it now? Right. So let's start with just a basic. Well, I think I think we can put uh, repeal and kind of a Hawley-esque reform into the same basket. So for those who don't know, uh, Senator Hawley wants to essentially set up 
uh, a certification process where you have to prove to a uh, to the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, that you are politically unbiased, quote unquote. Um, and if four of five, four of the five commissioners agree, then you can have Section two hundred and thirty protection. I think that's honestly quite just a, a might as well be as as bad as a repeal. But but in general, um, you, there's a lot of potential harms that can come from these these types of really drastic changes to 230. I mean, first, um, which you know, I, I as a libertarian I care about uh, is just putting the government in charge of more online speech. Um, I mean, any way you slice or dice it, whether it's going to be uh, through the FTC or through the courts or whatever, um, you're going to have the government determining uh, more of uh, what is appropriate online content. Um, because even if you uh, are trying to claim neutrality, neutrality still requires judgment, and that's going to come from the government. Um, and you know that that strikes me as uh, a really a problem. But from purely a, a strategic perspective for conservatives, again, um, it strikes me as odd to want to put the government in, in charge of, uh, or at least as a regulator of, of political speech again. Um, the next, I think, uh, quite a big one is lawsuits. Um, I think you would see a lot of lawsuits as, uh, you know, there is so much content that is not in the black or the white. You know, the black is child pornography, for example. I mean, clearly uh, illegal or clearly problematic content, you know, uh, threats against people's lives. Okay, that's another good example. Or in the white category, right? That's a birthday my picture of my daughter's birthday on, on Facebook. So, but there's so much gray in there and moderating that gray uh, is, would become part of the business model for these companies. Um, and so you would see, I think, any sort of gray would be would be litigated, um, litigated by I think some good faith actors, people who really think they have been um, uh, moderated inappropriately or in a biased manner. But I think there also is a huge potential for just deep, uh, you know, uh, litigants going after deep pocketed big tech. And you know, as I joked, um, you know, you'd have a newly empowered plain, plaintiffs bar for internet speech. That, that strikes me as, a, a, you know, as now as a former lawyer, I can say this before I probably would have had, you know, been disbarred. But now, uh, you know, that strikes me as a really bad idea to have a plaintiff's bar for that purpose. Um, but next, because of that litigation threat, I think you'd have less speech overall. Um, companies are not going to take the risks um, of all that litigation, of government regulation, of all of those things, um, if they don't have the type of protections that 230 provides them. And so what that's simply going to mean is you're not going to have Yelp reviews. You're not going to have, uh, you might not even have a Twitter or a Facebook. Um, if you know you, if you really had kind of a true repeal of 230, um, you'd have less Craigslist ads and all of those types of things that we we enjoy in third-party content um, would would shrivel if not disappear entirely. And then, of course, any sort of long delays in or strict regulation of content. Let's say the companies say, well, we, it's our business model; we've got to stay in business. Um, well, that's going to simply discourage consumers from using those services. And so, you know, look, I, I'm not going to want to wait a day for my tweet to get posted. Um, that kind of defeats the purpose of that media. 
And so what you'd, I, I think that, you know, the, you might think that's okay, right? You know, Twitter's just a bunch of idiots making, you know, dumb jokes or whatever. Uh, but the, the thing you have to remember again is that this wouldn't just apply to Twitter and Facebook. It would apply to Amazon and Yelp and the rest and all of those types of third-party content from which uh, we derive real value. Um, and not just value for you and me as consumers, but value for researchers who use uh, social media and other things for, for really cool, real-time economic research, all those things would go away. And, and, and that, I think, would be would be bad. Um, you know, another one that, that I think is pretty obvious is we hurt consumers. We I mentioned we all value Twitter, Facebook, all this free tech, quote-unquote free tech. Um, we value that. Well, that, of course, would be diminished. Um, you'd also see small businesses hurt, right? Because, you know, look, Google has an army of lawyers and they can handle the lawsuits and the regulators and the rest. Um, small businesses can't. And there's good research showing that investors wouldn't be as uh, willing to invest in tech companies and online platforms if they had this, this litigation risk, if they didn't have Section 230 protections. Um, so that slows economic growth, it slows innovation. Um, you know, that's all bad. Um, and then finally, you know, again, like the fairness doctrine, like um, campaign speech or uh, campaign donation uh, contribution limits and the rest, campaign finance limits, um, you empower legacy media, right? So, you know, these are the folks that um, they would not really have to worry about or need to circumvent traditional media because they are traditional media. And again, I think that comes uh, down on, you know, that would actually end up hurting conservatives um, much more than it helps them. Facebook, Twitter, if you were to offer advice to them for how they should approach their content moderation um, so as to avoid or at least attempt to avoid some of the calls for the repeal of Section 230 and then all the consequences that would flow from that, what advice would you give them? Well, as I noted in my newsletter, I, I think they are in a really an unwinnable position um, because if it were me, if I weren't running a business, if I weren't running their business, uh, I would have a very, very uh, liberal moderation policy. In other words, pretty much anything that wasn't illegal, I would, I would allow. Um, simply because I think that when you start going down this moderation rabbit hole, these types of problems are inevitable. The problem they have is that people are demanding moderation. And, you know, certainly from the left, I've heard this a lot. Oh, it's only the left demanding moderation. Well, that's not really true. Because when you get away from um, the clearly kind of the political correct side of demands. Um, there's also a lot of demands related to whether it's defamatory content or things that are just kind of objectionable or profane or whatever. I mean, you pull in a lot more people who are demanding moderation. And then, of course, there's the ad buyers and the companies, and they're demanding moderation too because their customers don't want to see um, whether it, whether it's profane content or whatever. And so, I, so once you then open the door to moderation, once you then say, okay, it's not a black and white standard of illegal versus not, um, that is really going to create, a, a, like I said, an almost unwinnable situation, given the sheer amount of data we're talking about. I mean, you're talking about millions and millions of bits of information posted every day, um, and armies of people trying to moderate this stuff and failing miserably <laughs> to do it. Um, and so I think that my only advice would be, given that dilemma, and given that I think tensions are inevitable, my only advice to them is uh, 
absolute transparency. Um, you know, really getting being as open as possible about what went right. About well, first of all, your standards. Here's what we're going to do, and applying it really robotically, um, and then um, trying desperately to um, provide transparency when things go wrong. And I think they fail pretty miserably on that last point. You know, you see whether it's Jack Dorsey or Zuckerberg or wherever, when they make a mistake, they go, "Oh, we messed up," but you don't actually then get into the weeds of how they messed up of what really happened. And I think that breeds more conspiracy theorizing. I'm, a, I'm, I'm still pretty much in the camp that these guys are more incompetent than they are malicious, but we don't know that. And that allows for people to think the worst. So, so my advice would be, um, you know, objective standards and absolute transparency. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, I don't, I don't think we're, we're there right now. To conclude here, I want to ask your personal opinion on something. So you mentioned you know, being a person who's very online, yeah. you know, I, I am too, to a great extent. I follow you on Twitter. Um, and people get various degrees of joy out of that whole experience. But when you, I think you couple two things together here, one, we had uh, the memories of the 2016 election stories of Russian interference and fake news uh, that we've been talking about for the last four years. And really for the last, you know, at least 10 years, I think I joined Facebook in 2005, 15 years or so. We've been living with these social media platforms that we're still really coming to understand how to live with them, how to use them in a way that actually feeds our happiness and doesn't right. feed kind of some of the darker elements of our human nature. Yes. People lash out on on Twitter and social media. There's the keeping up with the Joneses problem of people curating their lives to seem even better than they actually are and the impacts that it has on, on people. Yeah. How much of you, in your opinion, do you think this is born of a combination of that moral panic that came from the uh, 2016 election and from some people's, or at least not a general sense of unhappiness with uh, social media and how it makes us feel? No, I think there's some truth to that. Um, you know, I, I, as I've said elsewhere, um, that, you know, uh, being online is really like any sort of, um, you know, junk food or uh, anything that gives you that dopamine rush, right? Um, it, it requires discipline and it requires, uh, you know, eternal vigilance of sorts. And, and um, I do think that, that, that it's easy to get carried away just as it's easy to go to McDonald's every day. Um, and it does require uh, individuals to exercise personal responsibility and to exercise discipline over, over their use habits. And quite frankly, to mute and block people liberally. Um, it is simply not worth it. And you have to kind of learn that. You know, I, I, at a, I was kind of going down that, that road of being kind of too online and hyper aggressive. And I realized, you know, you really need to take a step back from that. And, and I think that, so first there's a really key element of that that is an individual and personal responsibility for, for maintaining um, an, a presence for being online. Um, that said, um, you know, because I think that feeds into my answer to you is that I do see kind of a, a, a 
an issue here, but not one that requires a, a government solution. You know, I think it's one that really like any sort of um, social or any, again, kind of any sort of um, uh, vice, if you even want to call it that, you know, it, it just simply requires our own individual and personal responsibility. And if we if we practice that more, if we were a little more hesitant to share things that might fit in our cognitive biases just a little too comfortably, if we're a little quicker to not respond uh, to someone, um, or if we, you know, schedule our screen time just like we schedule it for our kids, um, you could solve, I think, a lot of the issues that we're seeing um, that people feel with social media right now. Um, and I think you'd avoid all of the sorts of problems we'd have by getting the government involved. Scott Lincecum is an international trade attorney, a senior fellow in economic studies at the Cato Institute, and a visiting lecturer at Duke University Law School. He also writes the newsletter Capitalism for the Dispatch. Scott, thanks so much for joining us today on Act in Line. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. As always, thank you so much for listening today. Our team loves putting this show together for you every week, and it's so encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can reach our team at actonline at acton.org. Until next week, for Act in Line, I'm Eric Cohn.